What happens when your friends do a big improvement on their house? You think, well, I wish I had the money to do whatever. Um, I certainly hope you don't ever say that out loud. Well, I wish we had the money to do that. But if you find it difficult to be happy for wealthy people, you might be dealing with a poverty spirit. What's up, boss? This is Abraham's Wallet. We span the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode. We are continuing our series about uh, poverty. It's just Stephen today. Um, because I'm just going to walk you through basically a little study of the spirit of poverty and what that even means and, uh, well, what it could mean to your family and to your future. So as we have discussed already, uh, poverty is an evil thing. And Proverbs 10:15 says, The destruction of the poor is their poverty. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. So, This poverty thing, if we can get our hands around it and oppose it and get free of it, will make a huge difference, not only in your life, but in your entire family line from here forward. So it's funny because we're, we're we're treading into waters that we at Abraham's Wallet don't usually go into. Um, we, I don't believe that, uh, you know, poor planning is necessarily a spiritual issue. I don't think that um, not knowing how to set up a trust or do estate planning is necessarily a spiritual issue. You just need information, which is what we try to give you, and then you can make better decisions and plan better. And we want to kind of inspire you along the way. Poverty, however, is is a unique cat in, in the in the world of finance because the Bible would represent poverty as being a uh, a spiritual concept or having spiritual power. So we're going to be talking about something called a stronghold. Um, so you should just know about me. I, I'm a I'm a pastor. I have been a pastor for 20 years. Um, I've done studies on this stuff. Um, I'll give you reference for how to access more more stuff like this if you're interested in in going deep uh, spiritually. Um, but a stronghold um, it, it is something that's become so accepted by you that you no longer think about it. It's become part of your operating system. So a stronghold isn't something that you think about. It's what governs what you think about. It's not something that you feel. You don't sort of feel poverty, for instance. Fear is a great example for people. People tend to think of somebody as, well, that's a fearful person, or in their family they deal with a lot of fear. And you can see how they don't talk about fear a lot. You can just see it rules their thoughts. It helps them make decisions. It tells them what they can and can't attempt. Um, many people swallow fear so completely and unquestioningly there are certain arguments they'd never even consider, no matter how rational or truthful there are, those arguments may be. So there are activities they'd never consider because fear dictates their options to them. There are lifestyle choices from how many children they can have, to which jobs they would take, to which pay structures are acceptable, to which travel options they can entertain because fear so dominates them. So that's an example of a stronghold. There, there's something ap- operating in the background that keeps you from freedom that God intends for you to have. Um, we learned a bunch from a guy. Now, if all this sounds really foreign to you, um, there are indicators of all of this stuff in the Bible. Um, but there's not, not a chapter called, here's what strongholds are. You, This is one of those you kind of have to look for it in the in the cracks and see what the themes are. Um, we learned a bunch from a guy named Henry Wright, whose book, A More Excellent Way, is a treatise particularly on the spiritual roots of disease. So if you're interested in that, we, we have found it to be a, a helpful resource, although the book itself isn't that well written. 
Um, but Henry identifies six, I think, major strongholds that you can have in your life. They are fear, bitterness, accusation, rejection, unloving, and the occult. Um, I taught a class on strongholds for years, and we added religion into, into our list just because it's something that we saw over and over coming up. If you're interested in, in a good Bible study about this kind of stuff, and you just want a thorough look through of your own brain and your uh, generations, um, I would encourage you to take our course. It's called Critical Skills. Um, it's free. It's me teaching for hours and hours, and my wife teaches, and I think we have a couple of friends that help as well. We have a website called SaveHealDeliver.us, and you can go to that Bible study. You can sign up. It's great to do with a group. I would recommend doing it with a group. SaveHealDeliver.us. Um, okay, so strongholds. Um, are something you assume and you hold on to. So that being the case, a stronghold is also something that you can abandon or to be biblically accurate, it's something you can repent of. Strongholds exist in family lines. They're part of a family's culture. And because of this, you have to make a legal break from them. And then you have to change habits as well. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to spend a little bit more time describing um, the spirit of poverty. I'm going to help you through um, um, how to identify it in yourself and then um, basically how to break it if you want. Now, this is, again, I know this is, is very spiritual waters that we're walking in today, but I think it's helpful. I know that it's helpful for your finances if you find a spirit of poverty in you at all. Okay, let's talk about it. Um, poverty um, has uh, a couple of relationships spiritually that are good to know about. So, for instance, when we say the occult, you probably think of Ouija boards and seances. But occult only means it's something that occludes uh, 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 your view. So think of a... Um, solar eclipse. An eclipse is an occultic, um, is an occultic, I don't know what you'd say, moment. It's when something comes in front of something else, like the moon coming in front of the sun so that you can't see the sun. It blocks out the sun. That's what a, the occult is, is anything in your life that precludes you from seeing God for all that he is. Now, poverty is like that. Poverty will get in front of your view of God so that you can't see that he's a giver, so that you can't see that he's an optimist when it comes to your life. You can't see that <clears throat> he is a forgiver and a redeemer. You can't see his generosity because poverty gets in front of that and, again, precludes you from seeing it. It also has a poverty also has a relationship with fear, as we'll talk about. They're, they're closely related. When you think of money, are you fearful of what's going to happen? Sometimes we can be as fearful of good news as we are of bad news. A lot of times bad news feels more like an old friend and we shrug our shoulders and we nod our head knowingly and we go, yep, that's the way it happens with me. Well, we got through it before. We'll get through it again. Say la vie. This is the way life goes. And if good things happen, you kind of like grip your grip the chairs, uh, grip the arms of your chair and kind of go, oh, shoot, uh, well, I'm out of my comfort zone here. I, I bet I'm going to blow this. This is too much for me. Um, so fear is connected to uh, poverty because you expect bad things. I'll talk more about that. The last thing I'll just say that um, poverty is connected to is a spirit of accusation. So the spirit of accusation um it just makes judgments. It points fingers and puts blame and makes judgments. So with regards to poverty, that accusation, one, happens internally. I, I point a finger at myself. There's, there's self-hatred here. An accusation says, um, I will fail. I will fail when it comes to finances. I will fail when it comes to stewarding resources. I know that I will fail. 
Poverty can also accuse outwardly and point its finger at people who are successful, um, people who enjoy their money in a way that you can't feel the freedom to do it. And we point fingers at those around us. We make judgments about what they can and can't afford, even though we don't know what they can and can't afford. There's a lot of judgmentalism um, that's built into poverty. So poverty, just wanted you to know some things that poverty is connected to. Poverty presupposes failure. Now, we wouldn't say that failure is never a part of the life of a righteous man. God uses failure and rejection and isolation and loneliness all that kind of stuff. He uses them again and again in the scriptures with the men and women that he deals with. But we'd say that failure is not the ultimate story. God would use failure to turn you into a success, right? That's the story God's telling, telling is using failure to craft your character into a success. We read in, in an earlier episode, Psalm 112, which talks about this righteous man and he's wealthy and he has resources and his children are godly and he maintains the ancient boundaries of God's laws. Okay. What we what poverty can make you think is that failure is going to be the ultimate story that's going to be told. And so every failure that happens along the way, you know, you're just trying to scrabble enough together to put some kind of crappy nest together that will take you through the month or the year because you know that trouble is going to come eventually. So poverty expects loss, poverty expects failure, and poverty expects lack. Poverty is discontent. Hebrews 13.5 says, be content with what you have. It's discontent. Um, there's always, there's comparison here. Uh, talking about that, I mentioned that earlier when you're kind of pointing fingers at people with more or who enjoy their stuff more than you do. There's comparison and I'm discontent with what I have. Um, you're, you're not happy with the car that you have. Mark and I have talked many times about my uh, 2003 Nissan Murano uh, with the peeling seats. And um, I, I got to tell you, I'm not discontent with that little guy because it just keeps spinning like a top. Um, but there, there can be a sense that you constantly think, oh, now my car is three years old. It's so old. There's new technologies out. Oh, can you see, have you seen what those people's dashboard will do now? Oh, I got to, I got to run out and get that thing because there's this discontentment that will never be satisfied. And we said this before, but you can see as I'm talking about this, there are wealthy people who have tons of resources who still maintain a spirit of poverty. They have, they, they have a need to constantly be upgrading. They have to, a need to constantly um, measure themselves against their past, against their future goals. And there's like this anxiety that, that's produced by this, this ever-present discontentment. Again, the command is be content with what you have. And I, I got to tell you, that's something that uh, I, I struggle with in, in doing all of the Abraham's Wallet stuff is that I don't want to breed an, an, an unrighteous discontentment in anybody. Um, we, we, we have to be content before the Lord with whatever situation we find ourselves in. And yet we have to have the expectation I don't want it to be a mania in us, but a righteous expectation that we're going to grow, that um, we're going to be faithful in a small thing and we'll be put in charge of much to, to believe the Proverbs that say that if we build little by little, we will build wealth. The idea that if I will faithfully shepherd and steward the relationships around me, I will produce um, a, a well-watered garden of, of fruitful relationships. That's true in my marriage. That's true with my children. That's true with my friendships. That's true with people that I disciple. I have this expectation of things growing and improving, although I am content with where I am right now. And that might be a, a, a tricky knot to tie, but 
I think that's where we're supposed to live. Um, another verse that comes to mind is Matthew six twenty one. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you see people for whom the, the, how the stocks are doing, um, how, how their crypto, how their crypto coins are doing today, um, whether they have the latest uh, gadgetry, um, the, the newest releases from Apple, that's where their hearts, that's where their hearts are. So that's where their treasure is. And they put everything, all of their longing and expectations in this kind of accumulation thing. I know that it feels like I'm I'm describing greedy people when I'm, when I'm saying this, but greed and poverty are really closely related. The spirit of poverty and the spirit of greed, they they are they are at least first cousins. On that note, poverty looks like um, storing or accumulating being a way of life because you expect leanness. You, you expect things to be hard. If you if you ever run across a hoarder and they keep every newspaper that they've ever had in their lives because they think maybe they'll want to reference that at some point, um, you're dealing with a spirit of poverty there. If you ever see these people, I see them come across them every once in a while. Somebody drives by in a car and literally the only space that's left in that car is the space that the driver is sitting in. And it's just full of trash and trinkets and junk and you can see that somebody has gone to walmart and saw a special on something they didn't need they got it they shoved it in some corner of the car and the car or truck is just completely piled in with trash in there now that person might be on the uh on the verge of a mental breakdown but they're certainly dealing with a poverty spirit because again, poverty says you're not going to have enough going forward. You got to hold on to that. You, you got to you, you'll you won't have the resources to buy that again in the future. So sometimes this isn't necessarily the case for everybody, but sometimes you see somebody is holding on to. Let's say they have a um, teenage children. And you go down to the basement and you go like, why are all these, why are there all these plastic toys for like three-year-olds still in the basement? You have high school age children and they're saying, well, someday we'll have grandkids. Wait a second. Someday you'll have grandkids. So maybe 10, 15 years from now, you'll have grandkids. So you're holding on to grubby plastic toys that your kids used 10 years ago. Hey, come on. <laughs> I don't think that's healthy. Um, we, we need to get rid of our stuff. We, we, um, for me and my wife, my wife, as you know, is an event planner. So decor can tend to accumulate around us because for instance, we, we'll have all of these, um, little candle holders for, let's say you do votives at your, at your wedding reception. And there, we had to make 20 votives with matching uh, matching uh, candles holders, right, on everybody's table at the reception. Well, those can accumulate. So what happens at the end of those? Well, I can tell you the planner, whoever's in charge, goes, uh, we'll keep those. And that goes in our inventory. We might use that in the future. Well, in my house, that means a whole bunch of candle holders, um, a whole bunch of throw pillows that maybe were purchased for events, etc., they just start to stack up and accumulate. And you just think, well, I just might need that someday. Uh, instead of paring down, did you know that the more stuff that you have, the more anxiety that you have? Because that stuff starts to own you. Um, there, there's a real place for us to, to walk into what Jesus said in Matthew, uh, sorry, Luke 14, 33. He said, whoever does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. That doesn't mean that you have to get rid of every single thing that you don't use. But I do think Jesus is revealing something to us that the more stuff that you have, that your stuff can own you. And so there's freedom in paring down. And there's freedom for us in thinking, well, we haven't used those votive holders. We don't even think they look stylish anymore. 
I think we can just get rid of those. Let's take them down to goodwill or just throw them in the trash. And if an event comes up again that we think we need more votive holders, we can get them. We can get more throw pillows, etc. Instead of stuffing and storing every, because it's a spirit of poverty that says I have to store and accumulate. Spirit of poverty is also constantly borrowing, constantly over leveraging and thinking that, that um, I, I'm going to, um, I've only got so much, I'm never going to have a lot. So if I can multiply the leverage that I have with what I have, um, then, then I can, I can live a lifestyle that I would like, even when I know deep in my heart, I'll, re- I'll never really have anything. So th- this is living on credit card debt and running up credit card fees that eventually you can't even pay the fees. You, you'll never get on top of the credit card debt. Um, th- these are people who have three, four mortgages. I remember when I was a mortgage broker, there were people, there would be, this is right before all the big bad stuff happened in 2008. So I was a mortgage broker, I don't know, 2006, seven, eight, somewhere around in there. And as you, as you probably know, mortgage money was so easy to get hold of that we would give loans to people for buying houses or refinancing their houses that were 110 or 112% of the value of their house. Now, you shouldn't you shouldn't have to borrow 110% of the value of your house. You should have some money for a down payment. If you don't have money for a down payment, you shouldn't be buying a house. But we were writing notes. I remember as a mortgage broker, I'm kind of looking over my shoulder going like, are you serious? The banks will do this? And they go, yeah, 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 just, just do it. And the people want to do it and the banks are happy to do it. And boy, I... That was it was ethically confusing because I'd sit down with somebody and go like you know that this isn't this isn't a good solution for you and then you know people would tell me their story oh this is just temporary and I, well I know that the bank will do this for you I'm just telling you this really puts you in a dicey position so over leveraging what you have you know always buying stocks on margin and uh, just living your life from a borrowing standpoint as if you'll never have your own. That can be an earmark that there's a spirit of poverty present. Um, I'm just going to give you another another couple of things I, I jotted down. Do you, do you think that you have to give all of your work away? Um, if you're a graphic designer and you think, well, nobody will ever really pay me well for what I do. So I'll just do, I don't know, I'll make logos for people for 20 bucks. And and I don't know, that'll be fine. When you know the going rate is, I don't know, at least 40 bucks an hour for a, for a, a graphic designer. And it took you a few hours to make that logo. Well, there's something in your mind that goes, I'm not really worth that. I need to give away my work. Um, you think about how expensive it is to pay for a service. Um, I, I've, I've told you guys that that... Um, having poverty running in the background of my mind is something that I, I, it's something that I'm still working through. Um, I can tell you right now, based on a whole bunch of stuff going on in my world. Um, and if you look in my front yard right now, there are weeds, baby, there are weeds. And, um, I've got weeds in my, uh, beds. I need new mulch in my beds and the first thing that I think of when I think of outsourcing that, you know what? I've got so much going on right now. If I could outsource that, I would be free. First thing that goes through my mind, oh, it's going to be so expensive to pay for this. As if landscapers are out to gouge me. I actually have a couple of friends with landscaping companies. And I was reading some stuff uh, this week where I was re- I was encouraged again. And inspired again that giving money to my friends so that their businesses are healthy, that's a really good, that's just a good practice. And I want, I want them to be successful in their business. I want them to be profitable and I should be willing to pay for the a service that I need that would set me free, etc. So I'm just telling you that, that for me, the first thought can be how expensive it is for someone that that's that smells like poverty. So 
um, I feel like I win when I get something for free. And I, I tell you, this is a great indicator for me. Um, these are old sins of mine that I've confessed many times, but I, you know, I, I was so poor in college that, uh, we knew when like the Methodist students were doing their free lunch and then the Baptist student ministry was doing their free lunch. And then we knew when one of the local Baptist churches was having their Wednesday night potluck, well, that was on Wednesday nights, um, and just hit hit those things um like well i i mean i don't have any money so and which i didn't in college so i'm just telling you that habit of of finding what's free is hard to break this week just happened to me this week i'm getting a new uh provider for my phone and getting my service all straightened out so i'm in the phone store um the whatever the mobile service store this week and they're just giving away you know tchotchkes junk at the front door there's a there's a cup holder and there's a button and there's one of those deals that you stick on the back of your phone so that you can hold it you know between two fingers those little discs things and i as soon as i passed by this table of junk i looked at it and i thought to myself oh this stuff's free i'm a customer right now so so what could i could I take anything from this table that I could use? What could I need? Um, I, I I can do the same thing when there's like a clearance section. Go into Staples and there's a clearance section. Okay, well this stuff's real cheap. So uh, is there anything I could I need? I I don't need anything back there. I came in there for my paper. I got my paper. Oh, let's take. take. I'm just telling you, there's some that sniffs of smells of poverty. There's something there that's going. Um, I, I got to get something for free because I'm not going to have, and, and friends, uh, I think I could pay full price if I needed a koozie, you know, it's, it's silly. The stuff that goes on in your brain. Um, I don't tithe. I don't bring offerings to the Lord. That can be, that can be a real, um, indicator that, uh, there's, that there's a poverty in you. If you think I don't have money to give away to people, that's a real problem. Um, I find it difficult to be happy for wealthy people. I was mentioning this before, but when something good happens to somebody, we have some friends and they got, they got bought out of an ownership stake in a business and they had a major windfall. Um, and we're close friends. So they're telling us about this windfall. What's happening in my heart when that's happening? Um, I'm happy to report that I wasn't thinking, how do I get my hands on that money or why do they deserve that or anything like that? I'm happy to report. I was genuinely happy for them. But when something like that happens to somebody, your friend gets a new car when you need a new car. Um, somebody gets a, a big bonus check. Um, if they might not trust you enough to tell you that they got a big bonus check, but if they're if you're good friends with them and they told you what happens in your heart, what happens when your friends do a big improvement on their house? And you think, well, I wish I had the money to do whatever. Um, I certainly hope you don't ever say that out loud. Well, I wish we had the money to do that. But if you find it difficult to be happy for wealthy people, you might be dealing with a poverty spirit. I, I remember years ago, the Lord told me we have... We have some friends who are very, very wealthy, and I, I, I didn't know enough to know the stuff I'm telling you right now. I was just kind of pushing my way through, and I really felt like God told me, I want you to be generous specifically to the three men in your life who are the wealthiest that you know, and so I, um, I tried to be extravagant with them. Um, you know, if every time you go to dinner with somebody, you're thinking in your head that they have more money than I do, they can, they could afford this and you just assume they're going to pick up the tab. That's, that's yucky friends. Don't, don't do that. Um, be a generous person and be like the Lord. Did you know that the Lord doesn't say to us, he doesn't say to me, Stephen, you've had a good run. You've, you've had people around you that, around you that love you. And I've been very generous with you in your lifetime. So I think you're good. I don't think I need to be generous with you anymore. Don't you, don't you see how good I've been? He, this is 
I used the scripture before, but in, from his fullness, we have received grace compounded on top of grace and kindness on top of kindness. Now, that doesn't mean that when you feel that God's telling you to give money away, you don't think, well, who needs it the most? That's not necessarily a bad thought, but it is a bad thought to say, I won't be generous to people who are wealthy um, because they don't need they don't need generosity. Yeah, they do. They need encouragement. I can tell you from experience, they need encouragement. They need friendship. They need somebody who put their arm around and say, I'll buy your coffee today. I care about you. So the, the, the um, difficulty in being happy for wealthy people can be an indicator. Two more. I struggle to make uh, wise financial decisions, which leaves me stress. Um, I, I, I can't make good decisions wherever I go. And I feel that I'm not going to make good decisions. Last one, I find myself criticizing others for the financial choices they make, even if they have the resources to pay for them. Like a new addition in the house, like an upgrade on a car, um, like, like a fancy vacation, um, like doing something extravagant for their children. And you find yourself criticizing them even though they have the resources to pay for them. I'm just going to run through a quick list of other earmarks. Poverty says you'll always be behind or under or short or lacking. Poverty says you won't be rescued or delivered. Poverty says success or wealth is always short-lived. Poverty says everything is against me, even though Romans 8 says that the Lord is for you. And so nothing can, what can be against you if he's for you? Poverty says I have no allies. I'm alone. I've always I've often thought to myself when I start to unspool into worst case scenarios, you know, even if the very worst thing happened to me and we somehow lost it all, we have such a community of friendship and family around us, they wouldn't let us drown. They just they just wouldn't happen. So poverty says I'm alone. Poverty says, if we have money, it'll soon be gone, so we might as well enjoy it now, because it'll soon be gone. Poverty says, what I do now doesn't matter. Poverty is impulsive. If you got a poverty mindset, you think what you do with your money doesn't matter. If you assume it'll go bad or it'll be hard on you from here on out. If you assume any harvest will evaporate. If you penny pinch when you don't have to. If you make all decisions based on sticker price, if your life is in constant emergency mode, you might have a spirit of poverty. So, done with that. So, I, I hope I've given you enough references to kind of understand the, the, the poverty script that can run in the back of your mind. Probably, you probably have a couple of, of earmarks of the poverty spirit somewhere in your background. So let's talk about what to do about it. I'm actually going to walk you through what to do if you feel like, hey, Stephen, okay, you've got me. I, I, don't, I don't need you to convince me anymore. I, I, this feels like me. It feels like my family. Well, we have to do two things. We have to legally break this thing, and then we have to start developing some new habits. So um, I'm going to talk about oh, how actually how to break this thing legally. And I, I don't know if this is helpful fodder when you're on a run or you're in your car, but I want to actually ask you to walk through these steps if you can. The first thing is that we have to do, the Bible tells us over and over to confess our sins to the Lord, to confess them. It'd be even better if you had a friend or a spouse, you could talk these things through and just start confessing the things that have come to mind as you've been listening today. Well, that's me to a T. Oh, I think of this time. Um, confess those. And by the way, this spirit of poverty, it usually comes through generations and yet you're a participant in it. So none of us can say, well, it's just my parents. I just came from, no, you have also participated in it. You've made decisions and agreements along the way where you protected this thing in your mind. You protected the habits of poverty. And so you need to confess those as sin. They're sin. And the wages of sin is death. And we don't want death. So we have to do this thing that's renouncing. We renounce these ways. There's a great uh, proverb, I believe it's Proverbs 28, 17, um, that says, 
whoever um, whoever covers over his transgression will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Now, that applies, doesn't it? Doesn't that apply to, to Abraham's wallet and all the stuff that we talk about? Well, I want to prosper, okay? Well, then don't keep your sin hidden up. If you feel like God's putting his finger on something, confess it and renounce it. Meaning, okay, okay, I do this. I, I confess. If, if you don't have anybody, just do it right now out loud in your car. God, I confess that I'm a penny pincher when I don't have to be. I confess that I expect trouble to come my way. My expectation isn't of you doing good to me in the future. My expectation is of woe and trouble. Just confess those things to God. Whatever has come to mind, you might want to pause this and tell some stories back to God and say, that time I made this embarrassing decision. Oh, I see what was motivating me. Okay, first thing is to confess them. Second thing is by virtue of you confessing those, you just need to receive forgiveness. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins, sins and then to cleanse us of that unrighteousness. So whatever you confess to God that you get out into the open, that thing can be cleaned away. It's like a wound that has to be opened up to get all the junk out of it, and then it can be cleansed. So, just receive forgiveness. If you've done that right now, that's a big if. If you have confessed some sin, confessed it to God or to somebody else, I can just pronounce over you, you're forgiven by virtue of that confession. After having confessed, let, let me pray this prayer over you, if this describes you. Let me just pray over you. Lord, my friend here who's listening today um has become convinced there's some degree of a poverty spirit in him or in his family line. And there's been some confession here. And so I'm asking right now in the, uh, in the name of Jesus, I'm not asking, that's poor wording. I'm commanding that any spirit of poverty leave in Jesus' name because there's no more agreement and there's been a renunciation of those old, secret, fallen, crappy ways that lead to death. We renounce them. We don't want to keep them secret. We want to open them up. We want you to come in and we want you to cleanse us out. We want you to, like they do with that drill at the dentist's office, drill and get every last bit of uncleanness and rot and disease out. So we ask you to, to do that right now. Spirit of God, you're the one that searches out our inmost beings. We don't even know where poverty lives. We don't know all of the thoughts that it has. We just see indicators that it's there. We're asking you right now to go into those places, those broken wells that we've looked to. We ask you to go into those places and we want you to inhabit them. And we want you to start teaching us your ways. We want you to start delivering us from our habits that bind us to the poverty of our past. And we need you to start educating us. Just do for these people what you've done for me, which is to show me little specific things. You know, I always getting the cheapest thing on the menu. Well, I'm I got to get the cheapest thing because we're never going to have. What do you what? Where does that come from? Of course, there's a way to be reasonable and responsible, but good gravy. You don't have to always buy the cheapest thing on the menu. Um, just just educate us, Lord, so, so that you can set us free. Amen. And so I'm going to bless you now, and I'm going to bless you the opposite of, of some of these things. So poverty says that you won't be rescued or delivered. I just want to speak over all of our listeners right now that if you put your faith in the Lord, you're going to be rescued. And you're going to be delivered because that's God's nature. That's what he does. The most basic fact about you and your relationship with God is that you need a savior and that he is a savior. So he's going to deliver you. That's our expectation going forward. Poverty says that success or wealth is short-lived. The Lord says to you that your success is something that's going to be built on for greater success. 
that even your small successes are learnings so that you can go to greater success. Poverty says everything is against you. Romans 8.31 says the Lord is for you and who can be against you? So no, not everything is against you. The Lord is for you. Poverty says I have no allies or family. I'm alone. Boo! Not true. You're not alone. Number one, Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Psalm 68 says that he puts the lonely into families. So your family of faith might be hidden from you or you want deeper or better friends in the faith, which is a great ambition to have. Just start asking the Lord to uncover those people. And then here's a hint. You start being the one who befriends people in a way that you want to be befriended. Be faithful. Be generous. Be a listening ear in times of trouble. There's a proverb. Uh, I think it's in Proverbs 25. I'm not sure. But it says, He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. My dad always taught me, be the kind of friend you want to have. That's biblical. So, um, you're not alone. You were, you were, if you're born again, you're born again into a family of faith. And so you're not alone. Poverty says if we have money, it'll soon be gone. So why not enjoy it now? And that's, that's the, the uh, old way of saying that is eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We don't believe that. We don't believe tomorrow we're going to die, and we don't believe the best thing that we can do today is to indulge ourselves with what we have. That doesn't mean that it's not okay to have fun and to celebrate sometimes. Not saying that. I'm saying that if you have a habitual, addictive need to only celebrate when money comes your way and to waste it away instead of putting it to work and building on it, that's not godly. So I just want to say to you, the money that comes your way will not soon be gone. I bless you with self-control that doesn't say I have to enjoy things now. I bless you with self-control that says I can put this money to work. I can be like an ant and prepare for the future. And, and uh, lastly, poverty says that what I do now doesn't matter. And so I can be impulsive. Um, the Lord says that what you do now does matter, that he's watching all of our ways, that he wants to teach us how to be wise and to live like his son. Okay, that's the end of my uh, treatise on the spirit of poverty. And as we're starting to build foundation stones for you that you can build on in the future, I'm just going to close for today by reading from maybe my favorite book um, when it comes to uh, money. And how we're to how we're to handle it. I've talked about this uh, book before. It's called "Thou Shall Prosper." Um, the tagline is 10 Commandments for Making Money." It's by Rabbi Daniel Lapin, L-A-P-I-N. It's called "Thou Shall Prosper." Um, I give this to every young man who's starting a career, who's starting a family. Um, this is a go-to book for me. This rabbi, um, I know I've described this before, but this rabbi just said, Jews have a culture whereby we're responsible with money and we can multiply money. We do it all over the world in places where we are hated and despised and ostracized, and yet we know how to make money. It's in our culture. Um, it's not because there's a greedy Jew gene it's because we practice the ways of God. And so his first commandment, I'll never forget the first time I read this book, the first commandment, which is kind of the first chapter of the book, was so challenging to me. I think I had to put the book down several times. And it's the first commandment is believe in the dignity and morality of business. Well, that's I find that profound. So I'm going to read a couple of just a couple of uh, excerpts from this first chapter as kind of stepping stones for you if you have dealt with the spirit of poverty in your past as something to put your feet. So Psalm 40 says the Lord removes our feet from a quagmire and he puts them on a rock, a foundation that's strong and sure. So I'm going to give you a couple of things to start putting your feet on and then I'll close for the day. Okay, 
This is the very beginning of that of that chapter. If there's one Jewish attribute more directly responsible for Jewish success in business than any other, it is this one. Jewish tradition views a person's quest for profit and wealth to be inherently moral. If your chosen means of contributing to the world and incidentally providing for your needs and desires is immoral, well then stop doing it because it will inevitably taint your own existence. Step one in the process of increasing your income is to begin wrapping yourself around those two related notions. One, you're in business. And two, the occupation of business is moral, noble, and worthy. Skip ahead here. Feeling virtuous about what you do is an enormous advantage and one that has been a part of Jewish tradition since time immemorial. Developing a deep conviction of the intrinsic morality and dignity of business injects vast power into any enterprise undertaken. Of course, if you believe in what you're doing is right and good, well, you'll be unapologetic in selling yourself and putting yourself forward and encouraging other people to do business with you. People who view themselves as ethical and virtuous are far less likely to step over a legal line than are people who feel that they are already deeply involved in improper conduct. That makes sense. That makes all the sense in the world. If you think making money and turning a profit to pay for your mortgage and to pay for your children's um, homeschooling and to uh, put gas in your car so that you can do all of the great things you do in your life is somehow immoral. Well, then you're going to be you're going to be sneaky and underhanded about so many aspects of your business. But if you feel that what you do is good and godly and noble and right and virtuous. Well, you can, you're going to have those lines of integrity burned strong into the way that you do things, the way that you make money, the way that you spend money. No, you are not a swindling rogue. In reality, you're a noble person providing for others in a marvelous environment that benevolently rewards you for your consideration. So this kind of stuff is throughout the book. Um, I'm going to read one more passage in the uh, just uh, humor me here. During the seven days of creation, the word good is used seven times as God brings various parts of the world into being and expresses profound satisfaction in how they came out, as it were. Amazingly, the eighth appearance of the, world, of the word good is applied to nothing other than the eternal symbol of money, gold. Right there, in the very beginning of the vast volume of the Torah, no more than 43 verses into the constitution of the Jewish people, gold, the ultimate medium of exchange, the metal of monetization, is described as good by God himself. Skipping ahead. Deep within traditional Jewish culture lies the conviction that the only real way to achieve wealth is to attend diligently to the needs of others and to conduct oneself in an honorable and trustworthy fashion. Jews feel at ease blessing children each Sabbath with the words, May God make you like Ephraim and like Manasseh. The oral Torah fills in the gaps by explaining that Ephraim represents spiritual steadfastness, and Manasseh represents economic creativity. The two belong together, and Jews wish their children to embody both. The Bible emphasized the wealth of the, of the patriarchs, and along with other requirements, being rich was necessary for being chosen as a prophet during biblical times. For instance, the Talmud records that not only did Moses himself possess enormous wealth, but so did most of the subsequent prophets of Israel. Rabbi Yochanan in the Talmud said God only allows his divine presence to rest on someone who is strong, wealthy, wise, and humble. The wise King Solomon said, The crown of the wise is their wealth. And Jews have always understood that sentence to mean that God is happy with wise behavior and he rewards it with wealth. The Bible describes to its devotees the healthy outlook that legitimately acquiring money pleases God and is a positive experience. So he goes on about about how many cultural forces exist to make people bad about um, accumulating wealth. There are many cultural 
um, well, there's tons of cultural earmarks from I'll never forget um, President Obama talking about the 1% um, as if it was evil for these people to occupy the 1%. I always thought to myself, um, you're in the 1%. I've heard Jerry Seinfeld say, people talk about how wealthy Jerry Seinfeld is just from syndication of his um, of his sitcom. And he'll, and he'll always shrug his shoulders and say, I, I, wait a second, my parents always taught me to try to do well, and I have done well. So am I supposed to feel guilty for that? Um, there are many cultural things um, probably inside your family as well as inside our country that would make you feel guilty simply for doing well. The Bible would say that because we're on a trajectory of learning how to rule, and that is the trajectory of the sons of God, that we're learning how to rule, then learning how to master poverty as a spiritual um, battle and overcome that spiritual force is valuable as is learning how to physically rule over well it's not physically it's the concept of money and ruling over our um, selfish desires that are always short term and learning how to rule in all of these things we we the scripture says, as we would learn to rule in these ways, the Lord would give us more resources. He would put us in charge of more and more and more. That's not a bad thing, friends. That's God's way. So let's watch our mouths as we talk about wealth and poverty. Um, and let's watch our hearts and our minds and the sort of places we go to. Um, may you be free of the spirit of poverty And may you walk into the things God has for you by means of faithfulness and fidelity to his word so that you'll experience the kind of prosperity and benefit that God has for you. Thanks for listening today on The Spirit of Poverty. We'll see you next time.